This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, October 6th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Now less than a week to register to vote in time for the November election in Arkansas. The last day to register, Tuesday. Later this hour, specific reasons to vote as we hear more from last month's live taping of our podcast, Natural Election. And we also have a new edition of Sound Perimeter with Leo Uribe. That's in our second half hour today. First, a recent report from the Walmart Family Foundation found that housing in northwest Arkansas is becoming inaccessible to many workers, seniors, and families. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports that Cobblestone Farm Community is a development south of Cobblestone Farm in Fayetteville, and it has a goal of providing affordable housing to about 100 families. Sheep and goats are grazing as people walk past seven bee boxes making their way up to the white gravel road to the Cobblestone Farm. A crowd of people wait in foldable chairs or near a long table under a large tent for the groundbreaking of the Cobblestone Farm community. Thanks, Kelton. It's great to see you very diverse and mixed crowd from the business community. The community is a housing development which nearly 100 families will call home south of the farm at Weddington Drive and 54th Avenue in West Fayetteville. The community is a collaboration of institutions including New Heights Church, Potter's House, Anthology Real Estate, Strategic Realty, and the Accelerate Foundation. Well, it, it's it's about building a community, not just some buildings or some houses. So that we've got the right partners. We brought a lot of different partners in that are structured around um, building community. So we'll have different people, different incomes, and different housing here. And so how do you just not have them live next to each other, but how do you build relationships across that group? Potter's House, New Heights Church, really strong at how you do those things and making sure the people get the support that's needed. This is Jeff Webster, and he is the president and CEO of the Accelerate Foundation. The Cobblestone community is one of five Northwest Arkansas developments the foundation announced this past year. Webster says this community is geared toward lower-income families. So pretty much everything we do, be it housing, educational programs, our HARC organization that helps people get connected to resources, it's focused on that, that whole um, group. It's called the ALICE population, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. And it's the population that usually things are okay until all of a sudden a life event happens and all of a sudden then they tend to struggle. The development will have on-site or nearby retail and food access and employment opportunities. Other amenities include community gardens, green spaces, access to cobblestone farms, and connections to outside resources. It will mostly be made up of duplexes, but there will also be single-family units and triplexes, all ranging from one to four bedrooms. Rent for a unit will be between $365 to $625 monthly. At its highest rate, the cost is $235 less than the average rent in Benton and Washington counties, according to an Arvest Skyline report. Northwest Arkansans are witnessing record high rent rates, low vacancy rates, and rising home prices in Fayetteville outpaced Tampa, Las Vegas, and Orlando, according to a REMAX National Housing Report for May 2022. For Webster, this community is meant to ensure people who have professions like teaching have a place to stay. 
Yeah, it was really a combination of, of a bunch of different groups wanting to do affordable housing, seeing the need for people in northwest Arkansas, probably 65,000 people in this population group that we're always trying to help, first responders, school teachers, you know, may work at a bank, work for the city, work for Tyson, work for Walmart. In short, they work for all of us. And so it's people need help as far as finding affordable housing. So. Among the rows of onions, beets, and okra, officials representing collaborators lined up with shovels to officially break ground on the development. We'll go right here. Three, two, one. Webster and Jim Hall, co-directional leader of New Heights Church, spoke at the event. Hall says the organization started to work together around three years ago. Well, as a, from a Christian perspective and as a pastor, I want to do things that reflect the values of God. And uh, we feel like this farm and all that we're trying to do. Uh, the farm is not just for the community. Actually, about 75 to 80 percent of the farm produce goes to uh, reduce food insecurity in northwest Arkansas. And so we're interested in that. The church owns Cobblestone Farm and donated the land for the housing development. Anthology Real Estate designed the layout and local regional investors provided the funding. We're interested in uh, providing housing for people that need housing. Obviously, you know and everyone knows there's a terrible housing crisis right now in Fayetteville in northwest Arkansas. And we're also interested in providing community and providing job opportunities for people. So all of those values, we believe, are values that God's interested in. So uh, we're going to use our resources to collaborate with people that are interested in doing things like that. The development is expected to be completed near the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. The University of Arkansas Museum, located next to the Student Union on campus, closed to the public 20 years ago. Collections were relocated to a secure storage facility on the edge of campus where staff continue to work, but open public access is barred. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Prolog reports, though, a museum staffer aims to change that virtually. Laurel Lamb is curator of education and engagement at the University of Arkansas Museum, which shares facilities with the Arkansas Archaeological Survey in quarters, tight quarters, across from the Agricultural Experiment Station District, northwest of campus. She guides us through a darkened, carpeted lobby past illuminated display cases filled with indigenous pottery and effigies to a locked storage facility. So now we're going to enter the museum's collections facility, which is really the heart of the museum and where the rest of our collections are held. So the space we're in is a purpose-built facility. It was built about 20 years ago and it houses all of the museum's collections. Um, we have a very extensive collection. The museum was established back in the 1870s, not long after the university formed. And so um, over the years, it actually started as a geology teaching collection for students, um, but we've since expanded beyond that to zoology, uh, more regional uh, contemporary history, international cultures from all over the world. The huge temperature and light-controlled vault contains shelves of stored artifacts, skeletons, dinosaur bones, pottery, basketry, and antique furnishings. 
So the collections are organized by their disciplines. So we're standing in front of archaeology right now. Um, further down here we have zoology, so all sorts of animals, most of which are from Arkansas, but we have things from all over the world, including this very tall elephant leg. Um, there's a black bear there as well. An intact seven-foot-long fierce shale fossil of an ancient crocodile is mounted on the wall, one of many millions of artifacts that are stored here founded back in 1873. The museum occupied various halls on campus until 1986 when collections and staff moved into the old men's gymnasium field house next to the U of A Union and opened to the public. University administration closed the museum for budgetary reasons back in 2003 with collections and staff permanently relocated here. Public access is limited to prearranged research inquiries, guided tours, and special events by request, with museum collections open to university classes, researchers, and other institutions for exhibit loans. Like a library, if you want to find a library book, you need to have its call number, its catalog number, and so we need that here as well. Um, and so everything ideally in this collection has an ID number that we can look up in our system, in our internal database, um, and find here in the physical space. But last May, Laurel Lamb, with help from student interns and volunteers, began to build a new external database hosted by Omika, an open source web publishing platform for the display of library, museum archives, and scholarly collections. We walk to Lamb's office where she clicks through the site there's approximately 300 items uh, published on there right now, but there are, there's, a, there's approximately 7.5 million objects in the collection. So there's still a lot to be added. And that's kind of, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, it'd be wonderful to have everything already on there, but also it's kind of exciting because you can check back week by week and see what else has been added. Search uamuseum.omeka, O-M-E-K-A. The homepage opens with a colorful collage of keywords hyperlinked as tags. Tags, basically, whenever you open it up, there's all these, all these different words that pop out at different sizes. Um, animals, Arkansas, North America, zoology. It's not just going to pull up archaeological materials from Arkansas. It's going to pull up... Um, natural history collections from Arkansas as well. And so there could be potentially new ways of experiencing and considering ways that the objects are connected across disciplines and across collections, and which I hope will really bring some interesting new projects and research to it. She clicks on the bird tag. So once you click on a tag, it'll take you to a list of everything that has that particular tag. And so right now we're looking through a lot of different birds uh, in the museum's collections, common moorhen, hairy woodpecker. The U of A Museum has drawers filled with preserved bird specimens and eggs. The page also tells you a little bit about um, the medium of the object. So like uh, for this particular hairy woodpecker, it's a skeleton. Um, so it's versus like taxidermy or an egg or a nest. It tells you about what it looks like um, in its form. It also tells you a little bit about the taxonomic information for the animal. So its class, its family, its genus, its species. Um, if we know the location of where it was found, it'll tell you 
up to the state of where it was found. Um, so any information that we have is, is put here. Collection pages also feature the status of wildlife. For the zoology collections is we're actually adding their IUCN status, whether it's extinct, endangered, vulnerable, and in this case, so this is listed as extinct. And you can, there's a hyperlink to visit the, the page for this, uh, for the IUCN status and learn more about the, the range and all of that. Patrons can browse items, tags, collections, exhibits, as well as ask staff questions and post comments. So I'm just really excited about this project. I'm really excited. To, I'm always looking for new ways to get people engaged with the collections and make it more accessible. So uh, I hope people enjoy what they see. Access to the U of A Museum Digital Collections database is free. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Division and the Oklahoma Conservation Commission will launch a series of public meetings to update the watershed-based management plan for the Illinois River watershed on Tuesday in Siloam Springs. The Illinois River and its tributaries have a variety of uses set forth by the Arkansas Pollution Control and Ecology Commission, including fisheries, recreation, drinking water supply, and agricultural and industrial water supply. A press release about the upcoming meeting states the goal of this watershed-based plan is to protect and improve water quality in streams and other water bodies by addressing non-regulatory issues through voluntary activities or practices. The meeting is set for Tuesday, that's October 11th, from 3 to 5. It will be held at the First Baptist Church at 2000 Don Hill Road in Siloam Springs. Support for KUAF comes from Westwood Gardens, offering mini and large pumpkins, ornamental squash, and straw bales, as well as pansies for fall decorating. Westwoodgardens.com for more. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more are available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville wregional.com slash herhealth to learn more. This is Ozarks at Large. We're just more than a month away from the midterm elections. Our podcast, Natural Election, continues every Tuesday to examine some of the nuts and bolts of elections, governing, and democracy. Last month's live taping of Natural Election zeroed in on a core tenet of all that, voting. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore talked with Jennifer Price, the executive director of the Washington County Election Commission, and Janine Perry, a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas, about the importance of voting and how elections work. The session was recorded in front of a live audience at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History on the Fayetteville Square. You can hear the entire episode of the podcast by going to your preferred podcast distributor, but we wanted to share a few highlights here. Uh, I kind of want to dig in a little bit into the does my vote matter element of this. Janine, are there any specific examples of a local election that led to a major policy outcome? Uh, yes, uh, but maybe particularly like a close one where one person's vote mattered. Yeah. Yes. Um, I remembered two, uh, well, two sort of in the general realm, and one in particular that some of your listeners might or might not remember, but be interesting. So um, I remember that back in 2000, there was, and I looked this up today, there was a Ward 2 city council race <laughs> in which there were three candidates, and the second place, but it, you know, they needed to have a runoff, 
as often happens with three candidates. And the second place, people were tied. Wow. So about half the states, it's not uncommon. I read state and local government news more than the average person <laughs> around the country. And you see articles like this a couple times a year where there's a tie. Uh, and different states and different communities, even inside states, do different things. But about half of them, it's basically draw straws or flip a coin. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, so that. Um, so here in Arkansas, yes. how do they decide that? Uh, in, uh, we are a, um, a random chance. I think okay. it's flip a coin or draw a straw. But not everybody's like that. Sometimes they Rock, start paper, the election scissors. over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's just like games of chance. That's like half the states. And then there was quite a number of things. There can be temporary appointments. There can be mm. the election right just starts over again, which sounds exhausting. Jennifer. <laughs> um, there are things like that. So that was just a general like who gets elected and who doesn't. But then I also will always remember, because I thought it was so interesting, the 2007 local election in Fayetteville about impact fees for development, so just before this explosion of change. And kind of, the, to put it simply, the more environmentally-minded folks wanted to put impact fees on new developments and the more pro-developy, right? Like folks said, um, we, don't, we don't want that. That'll slow things down. There are all these other benefits. It went up for a vote at the election, and it was a tie. Uh, and there was, and it was a major policy change, and there was one absentee ballot that came in from overseas. You must yes. remember this. And they're supposed to, like, put the ballot in a box to keep it secret and shake it around. <laughs> but everybody was going to know what this one person's vote was because it was either going to change, it was going to change the outcome of the election. So long story short, the, um, the impact fees failed. Um, and I mean, that's a pretty, a pretty major thing. But overall, it's, it's certainly, it doesn't happen all the time, but it can happen. But your vote's going to matter more. This is just a matter of the math, right? The more, the local level you get. Like, I've helped out with a few school board races over the years and, and a couple of city council races. They're nonpartisan. But just by looking at all the beautiful voter files that are all publicly available, when I'm looking at them, it's like, you can win one of those elections by essentially knowing f or convincing five Fayetteville families the families, mm. not really. It's not always the same families. But basically, you can kind of pick five families and their kin if it's just a school board race and yeah. you can say, get the word out, because we're talking hundreds of votes, not thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions. So just mathematically, it's not hard to turn an election at the local, at the local level. So school board races, city council races, um, impact fee elections, right? Um, liquor elections, local option type stuff, like that's when your vote really, really matters. Right. And you're not even in those instances, you're not even necessarily voting for a person. You're voting for a, 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 a policy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so those are the sorts of things where there's not necessarily a face to the, the person or the, the policy because it's literally faceless. It's not a person. Right. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, can you talk us through the process of what happens between when polling places close mm -hmm. And elections are announced, whether it's on TV, whether it's on KUAF, <laughs> however, they're, however they're announced. What happens for you in your office between it's time for the polls to close, we're going to gather everything up and head off to a shed where no one sees us. And, and tell, us, tell us what goes on there. So we don't count in a shed. Uh, I just want to make that very clear. Um, and so um, 
Our counting process is open to the public. When we close the polls, that's open to the public. Basically, everything our office does is open to the public. And we want everyone to realize that, that we will never close our doors to anyone who wants to watch the process, who wants to see what we do. Um, that's always open, open to the public. And so basically, once the polls close, then our poll workers bring back the voting materials to the courthouse. We do a central location. Um, the ballot boxes at the polling locations have been counting the ballots all day, um, and that information is stored on a media stick that comes back to us. Also, want to point out our voting equipment never hooked up to the internet, so there's no, you know, we're not transmitting information from the polls to our central count location. They're actually bringing that back to us, along with the ballots and all the paperwork. So as they bring that in, we actually you know, do our own set of checks and balances before we release results. And everyone wants those results so quickly. I want to release accurate results, and so I will hold back because I need to make sure that if I release results, that that's true and accurate. Because if I have to come back and say, we forgot a polling location or a mistake was made, you lose trust in what we do. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, you know, we take those results that come back, there's a results tape, there's a media stick, and then our poll workers during the day are keeping a handwritten list of every voter that comes into the polls. And they return back to us what's called a totals page. That's a snapshot of that polling location that tells us the number of voters that came in, the public count from the DS200, the total numbers of voters written on that list of voters. And then we have a results tape and we read that into a computer that's never hooked up to the internet. And when all those numbers match up, we have a little someone who sits there with a spreadsheet inputting those numbers. And when we, you know, at the end of the evening, we balance that spreadsheet, the information that we've read into our computer, and we expect to see matching numbers. When we do that, then we release the results. Um, but, um, so that's election night. But then you also have other ballots that we didn't count election night. So those are the military overseas ballots that have 10 days to come in, um, provisional ballots, so if someone goes to the polls to vote during early vote or election day and there is a question about their eligibility to vote or they've forgotten their ID or they requested an absentee ballot but it never got to them or they forgot to mail it, um, then those are set aside for the commission to review. And then ultimately, we add every vote into certification. Whether it changes the outcome of the election or not, it will be included in the final certification. Um, what do you, have you, well, let's start with this question. Um, have you personally had someone who has asked you about the security of elections? And, and if so, what kind of conversation do you have with them? Do you like go and show them the screens and say, <laughs> I promise this is, we're doing it right? I mean, we're, we're living in an environment right now where like these questions are being asked, whether facetiously or earnestly. You know, have you had that experience? Yeah, in fact, in 2021, I did a little class about how elections are conducted in Washington County where we talked a lot about security. Um, and I'm gonna do it again before this election where we talk about the security of the elections. Um, and so we do, I will always have that conversation with voters. I will always be open and show voters, 
here's our list and here's what we compiled and you know uh, ballots obviously those are secured in a ballot box but everything we use that night definitely um, you know our office is always open um, we're always willing to talk about it because we want voters to have faith in what we do and if you're not open about the process voters will not have faith in the results that you release and so um, we, you know, talk about the fact that, um, you know, no matter what you hear, and I know you talked about national news, I always say when you're getting ready to talk about elections and learn about elections, turn off the national news. Find your local media. That's going to tell you what's happening in Washington County. That is going to tell you what is going on here. And listen to what we're doing, what we've said, you know, our office is open. Um, so, but we've had many conversations with many voters and it's important to carry on those conversations and to take their concerns seriously. Yeah. I mean, do you see minds changed? Do you see people who come in and say, <laughs> oh, that was much safer than I anticipated? Yeah, we do, you know, and then sometimes there's voters who it doesn't matter, you know, and that can be on any number of topics, you know, about all types of voter ID laws or, you know, just different things that we do, but we try and make sure that a voter, you know, that they can trust what we're doing, that they can see, um, you know, the, the steps that we take to make sure we have secure elections. Yeah. I just wanted to add, that's so important, there's a, there's a truism in political science about how everybody thinks education is terrible and failing in the United States, but everybody loves their local teachers, principal, and schools. <laughs> and it feels the same way with this very loud, um, and hyperbolic election discussion that we've been having, if you could call it a discussion. But really, if people would just come, I've always been someone who goes to watch them count ballots on election night at the quorum courtroom or wherever they are at the courthouse because I just think it's fun. Um, <laughs> it's so exciting to be the first one who gets the printout of the early returns mm -hmm. or you know gets it at least at the same time as the media people who are there. Uh, and I feel that way now about being a poll worker, like just going through the process and looking at how earnest everyone is and how all of us know what the machine says and what the count is and how to do it. And we're all helping each other. Like it's just your friends and neighbors trying to help you vote. There's, there's nothing scary or loud or angry about it. It doesn't need to be like that. It's really just come and see it, right? Put down the internet, <laughs> turn off the television, whichever station you're watching, and come and interact with your friends and neighbors. Janine Perry is a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas, and Jennifer Price is the executive director of the Washington County Election Commission. They talked with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore for a live taping of our podcast, natural election. The entire episode, as well as others, free through subscription or download wherever you find your podcasts or at KUAF.com. The UAFS Democracy Project will continue a series of town halls this month aimed at increasing voter awareness and access to local candidates for elected office. This will take place on the UAFS campus. Next session, Friday, October 14th, a week from tomorrow at noon. It features candidates for Arkansas Attorney General. Town halls with candidates for seats in the Arkansas legislature are scheduled for noon on Tuesday, October 25th, and Wednesday, November 2nd, each taking place in the campus center. And Eureka Springs residents can hear from candidates for city and local offices Thursday night, October 20th, at the end of the Ozarks Convention Center. The forum will begin and end with 30-minute informal meet-and-greet sessions. 
and the candidate forum itself is from 6 until 8. The nonpartisan forum, October 20th, sponsored by the Greater Eureka Springs Chamber of Commerce. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. Some big news this week from Tyson Foods that will have a ripple effect throughout the region. The meat company said Wednesday it will consolidate all of its corporate employees to its world headquarters in Springdale. Tyson Foods has about 1,000 employees at three corporate offices in Illinois and South Dakota starting next year in what the company calls a phased relocation. They will all begin moving to Northwest Arkansas. To accommodate the growth, Tyson says it will also embark on a multi-year campus expansion project in Springdale. That will include both new construction and remodeling of existing facilities at World Headquarters on Don Tyson Parkway. The company says additional details will be revealed in the coming months. Kim Souza has additional reporting and reaction to the news, and you can find that story online at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. A new report from the Arkansas Economic Development Institute suggests a lot of new economic activity if voters approve Issue 4 at the ballot box in November. Issue 4, of course, would legalize adult-use marijuana for consumers 21 and older. Some of the report highlights suggest $2.4 billion in cumulative economic activity, 6,400 new jobs, $285 million in new state tax collections, and $50 million in new local tax collections. Economist Michael Paco is the author of that report. He sat down recently with Roby Brock to discuss. You looked at a lot of other states to synthesize this data. I want you to tell me a little bit about that process and tell me which states kind of come closest to mirroring what Arkansas could experience. Well, we, uh, in order to figure out what we should expect, we looked at states that have been through the same experience of starting off with a uh, medical marijuana regime and then changing to adult use. Uh, there are about 19 states that have actually legalized recreational marijuana, uh, but several of them are just getting underway or they're 
wrapped up in all the bureaucratic uh, details of setting up the program. Uh, so we found uh, nine or eight other states that we were able to use, uh, that we had at least a full year of data for 2021. Uh, and then it was just a matter of uh, comparing uh, those states to Arkansas's population and income uh, to get a sense of uh, what the relative size of uh, the industry might be in our state. And, um, and obviously from this report, a lot of economic activity. I want to dive a little bit more into that. But tell me, first of all, um, what, kind of what happens in those states where the medical marijuana usage falls off and shifts to recreational marijuana? How does that transition kind of work in some of those states? Well, what we, we saw in a couple of states, at least, where we had enough data to, to, to make some judgment about it, uh, in Colorado and Michigan in particular, uh, that the uh, medical marijuana sales began to become a smaller fraction of the total sales over time. Uh, now, there are certain advantages. I think in Michigan, it's the same as this proposed for Arkansas, that it would be uh, medical marijuana is tax-free. Uh, but at the same time, there's also the uh, bureaucratic uh, process of getting that medical marijuana card, uh, et cetera. So uh, uh, it may be that uh, some individuals find it not worth the effort to go through that process of getting that card and can just go down to the adult use dispensary instead. So uh, we, we don't expect that to be a big factor, but a little bit of a drop off in the uh, size of the medical marijuana market as time goes on. So the $2.4 billion that's referenced in the, in the study is over, I think, a five-year period. Um, is that a net economic impact or is that just projected and then there could be some other things that could knock that down? Well, you know, there, no forecast is perfect. This <laughs> is perfectly correct. Um, but yes, it is intended to be a net forecast. So uh, what our baseline is, uh, is the assumption that the medical marijuana industry would continue on as it is for the next five years. Uh, and so all our comparisons are with that forecast in mind. So uh, what we're looking at is that, that increase in GDP above and beyond what would be there in the medical marijuana industry. One of the things that I hear from opponents of the recreational marijuana um, uh, proposal is that in some states you have more accidents now as a result of, um, of recreational marijuana use, which can lead to higher insurance rates. You've got lost worker productivity. Is any of that factored into your economic assessment? Uh, no, this, uh, our analysis is purely economic and financial, uh, looking at the impact on the state's GDP, jobs, and uh, tax collections. Uh, now, there are a lot of additional you know, non-monetary considerations that one might look at on, on both sides of the issue, whether uh, it's the issues you referred to as the, the opponents or uh, the proponents of adult use marijuana would point out the cost to society of uh, arresting and processing and incarcerating people for possession. So, uh, you know, the, the, those, those kind of things are all factors that should be considered. But our, our focus in this paper is very narrow on the, uh, on the business aspect. Does it shift consumer spending? Does, I mean, uh, again, just in, in your analysis, are you looking at people that would maybe spend money on something else and now they're going to spend it on recreational marijuana? Or is it kind of all new spending? Yes, that's, that's the, really the fascinating part about this whole process of trying to model it is where is the demand going to come from? Uh, now, we modeled a couple of different sources of in-state demand. One would be uh, those who don't currently consume any cannabis uh, and who would begin to do so because it was legal and available. And there we explicitly modeled diversion of spending from other consumer goods to cannabis. Uh, the other class of in-state spending that was uh, important is uh, 
uh, those who currently purchase marijuana on the black market. Uh, and so while that is certainly new spending in the above ground economy, uh, it represents uh, an increase in measured GDP and jobs, uh, it really is dis just displacing a different kind of economic activity because, uh, of course, black markets are part of the economy too. Yeah. You can't measure the black market, though. I mean, I, I guess, how, yeah, how did you kind of, part. yeah, how did you kind of, I guess, factor some of that into the study? Uh, well, you know, when we looked at uh, trying to divide the, the in-state demand components into those new customers versus black market diversion, uh, it was really kind of... Uh, in a sense, it's guesswork. But we were, we did look at surveys of uh, marijuana use uh, from the, uh, from the federal government uh, and estimated that there are currently about uh, 330,000 Arkansans who say they have used marijuana in the past year. And certainly the uh, number of medical marijuana cards out there can't account for all of that. So there, there clearly is a... a, a, a significant black market out there. I haven't looked at the um, at the medical marijuana card issuances. How do you, you remember off the top of your head? Kind uh, of we're ballpark up, where they in are. the range of about 90,000. That is Michael Paco, the chief economist with the Arkansas Economic Development Institute in Little Rock. If you want to learn more about the potential economic impact of recreational marijuana in Arkansas, you can follow our reporting over at talkbusiness.net. Iowa-based construction hand tool manufacturer Marshalltown has acquired a California company and that will result in about 200 new jobs, half of them coming to Marshalltown's operations in Fayetteville. That deal closed September 30th and Vice President Jack Murders said the Fayetteville facility employs around 500 people at its two locations in the city's industrial park. Carol Stern has resigned as executive director of the Walton Family Foundation. She spent three years there after 12 years as president and CEO of UNICEF. Stern is expected to continue leading the foundation through the transition to a new executive director. And that job search is underway. And the latest Skyline report on commercial real estate indicates that Northwest Arkansas companies across many business sectors are experiencing continued growth. The commercial vacancy rate in Northwest Arkansas fell from 8.3% to 5.8% in the past 12 months. The warehouse vacancy rate dropped from about 5% to less than 1%. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. The second season of Groundways will conclude with an open mic Tuesday night at 214 Cash in downtown Springdale. Northwest Arkansas rappers and MCs are invited to test their skills over the course of an evening of music and community alongside West Coast rapper and hip-hop artist Murders. All performers will be invited to attend one-on-one -on -one mentorship sessions the following day with him. Sign-ups for a slot for the open mic begin in person only at 5 o'clock Tuesday evening. Performances... Open to the public will start at 6 Tuesday night. World Cup Cyclocross returning to Centennial Park in Fayetteville later this month. The World Cup races featuring the planet's best riders set for Sunday, October 16th. But there are two other days of races for junior, master, and community riders. First races will start 10 o'clock in the morning, Friday, October 14th, then continue through the World Cup elite races that start Sunday afternoon. 14 World Cup races take place around the world that lead ultimately to the world championships. 
This month's World Cup event in Fayetteville, just one of two that will take place in the United States. A full schedule of the races in Fayetteville can be found at cyclecrossfayettevilleAR.com. And the NWA Tech Summit returns to Bentonville later this month, October 16th through the 18th. The theme, Fast Forward. It's an in-person affair this year. Speakers include the Executive Vice President, E-Chief Technology and Automation Officer at Tyson Foods, Chief Medical Officer at Salesforce, the Senior Vice President of Supply Chain Innovation and Automation at Walmart, the worldwide leader for retail at Microsoft for Startups. You get the idea. Programming includes the sort of titles that sound appealing to all levels of technology, mobility and supply chain, cybersecurity, health and wellness, Web 3.0, and entrepreneurship. And there are new features for 2022, like the partnership with the Blockchain Center of Excellence at the University of Arkansas Pitch Competition with a $10,000 prize and programming for high school students. The summit presented by the Greater Bentonville Area Chamber of Commerce. More details available at nwatechsummit.com. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering the nationally recognized Hendricks Odyssey program, which ensures students complete three or more hands-on learning experiences from internships and undergraduate research to service opportunities and study abroad programs. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. Support for KUAF comes from Ballet Arkansas, one of America's top 100 ballet companies. Presenting Dracula, a bold multimedia adaptation of Bram Stoker's legendary novel at the Fayetteville Public Library Event Center, October 14th and 15th. It features epic dance performances and chilling imagery just in time for Halloween. Tickets and information about other performances this season at balletarkansas.org. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we'll ask Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics about news stories that developed during the past seven days. We'll invite Becca Martin-Brown, the Features Editor with the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, to pick a few highlights for a weekend that includes the return of bikes, blues, and barbecue. And we ask Courtney Lanning if the new film Luckiest Girl Alive is worth the emotional investment we need to make for a movie that covers difficult subjects like sexual abuse and school shootings. Those conversations and much more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF and available for free is the Ozarks at Large podcast. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. 
We open Symphony Meter today with Sun Will Set, a piece by Canadian composer and performer Zoe Keating. Zoe Keating has spent a large part of her career as a cello player exploring the landscape of sounds a string instrument can make. Her music has been described both as Zoom-inducing by the San Francisco Weekly and a distinctive mix of old and new by NPR. She is also known for her use of technology and for composing, recording, and producing her works on her own terms without the help of a record label. This piece is part of her solo album One Cello Times 16, Natoma, released on January 1st, 2005. If you can, I invite you to stop what you're doing and continue listening to this piece for the next few minutes, allowing its repetitions and loops to be a reminder of predictability and hope. That was Canadian composer and performer Zoe Keating performing her own piece, Sun Will Set, from the 2005 self-recorded, produced, and released album One Cello Time 16, Natoma.
Let us move from a cello meditation to a fast-paced display of virtuosity. As we honor solo, low-string instruments in sound perimeter today, our next piece is by Israeli self-taught multi-instrumentalist, composer, and educator Adam Ben Ezra, known for his double bass performances. Throughout his career in compositions, Adam Ben Ezra has strived to bring the double bass from the accompanying part to that of the front presence. In his piece, Can't Stop Running, he explores all possibilities in his instrument, making it take the role of the drum kit, accompanying harmonies, and lead melody in a display of virtuosity. was Israeli double bass player Adam Ben Ezra performing his own composition Can't Stop Running from the album with the same name released in 2015. Today in San Perimeter we explore the extreme paces of life through examples of solo low string music by Zoe Keating and Adam Ben Ezra. I hope you were both relaxed and energized to continue with your day and also excited to discover new voices and new musics. 
Sound Perimeter is a segment hosted by me, Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department and produced by Timothy Dennis. Sound Perimeter is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. We hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon. This is Ozarks at Large. The Spark Foundation launching a new Halloween-themed run in Salem Springs this fall. The Trick or Trot 5K and 1K will be Saturday, October 29th. Young Runner's registration fee is on a pay-your-age scale. All proceeds will be donated to Salem Springs Public Schools. Registration now open at runsignup.com. Just search for the Trick or Trot Run in Salem Springs. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with backcountry and urban footwear, clothing, equipment, and more. Pack Rat is dedicated to conservation and waste reduction. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Waldron. Ozarks at Large, a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Jacqueline Froelich, Leah Uribe, and Paul Gatling. Today's Sound Perimeter, produced by Timothy Dennis. Today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, produced by Stephanie Brock. Today's show, produced by me, inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Our underwriting director at KUAF is Ryan Versey. He's always checking his email. If you want to reach out to him about underwriting, you can go to ryan at KUAF.com. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can always find out more about us at ozarksatlarge.com. There you can find complete past editions of our show, individual stories and interviews, and much more. You can also download us for free and take us with you as the Ozarks at Large podcast from KUAF.com, OzarksAtLarge.com, or your preferred podcast distributor. We're going to have more for you tomorrow on a brand new edition of a Friday Ozarks at Large at noon and 7. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I'm Kyle Kellums, back again tomorrow.